right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Excited that you're here. We have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of things to get through this morning. And I really, 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 I know this sounds like an empty promise week after week. I really want to give you time to talk about this in your groups. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 18. I mean, 19, sorry, 19. Yep, Matthew 19. We will not be able to cover everything as you find Matthew 19, but just know our plan is to get through chapter 20 this morning. So Matthew 19 and Matthew 20, we'll kind of have to hit some highlights on some of these sections. Other sections we'll dive into. Uh, But just by way of introduction, uh, here we go. We're going to be looking at what I've titled the Upside Down Kingdom. All throughout Matthew 19 and 20 and all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the kingdom of God is not like uh, earthly kingdoms. It's not a place where people um, jockey for rank and, and success and notoriety. It's not a place where people lord their authority over people. It's a place where the greatest are the least and the first are last and servants are the, one who, are the ones who lead. So um, we're going to see a lot of different things about what life in the kingdom is like, how we might enter the kingdom, uh, how the life as a, a citizen of the kingdom of God might affect the way we live in this world. Um, So yeah, so let's get started. I'm going to start in chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and uh, we'll fly through this together. So let's read together. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray before we go any further. God, we love you and we are thankful that we get to come together this morning and and spend time with you and with one another around your good word. We pray that by your spirit, the word of God would dwell in us richly. We pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to behold your glory. We pray that you, oh God, would transform us today as we think about living life in this upside down kingdom of God where Up is down, the greatest are least, the first are last, the servants are the ones who lead. We we pray that you would help us to live in light of those truths. Help us to understand your word. Help me to teach it with clarity, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we're going to fly through this first section because, well, um, it mostly has to do with marriage and most of you are not married. And so uh, there's a couple of things I want to say about marriage and divorce and singleness. So if you're taking notes, the first thing would just be marriage and singleness. So Jesus is, is moving, he's, he's going towards, uh, from Galilee and to Judea, 
and the crowds are following him, right? He is, he is famous at this point. He's teaching, he's healing, he's showing off in miraculous ways that he is more than just a good teacher. He is the son of God. And so the, the Pharisees came up to him, look at verse 3, to test him. They came to test him. They, they want to find a way to embarrass Jesus, to prove Jesus wrong, to catch Jesus in a contradiction. And so they ask him a question about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, if you go back to the Torah, to the first five books of the Bible, you'll see that in the law of Moses, there are uh, there's a, a exceptions made for divorce to happen. But what's, what's happened over the course of the thousands of years or 1,500 years or so between the giving of the law of Moses and Jesus is that these Jewish leaders, these rabbis, these Pharisees have very much broadened out the idea of divorce to basically mean this. If you are a husband and you find any fault of your own judgment in your wife, you may divorce her without any other cause. All you have to do is give her a certificate that says you're divorced. And the, the reality is women weren't able to divorce their husbands for those reasons. Men were able to divorce their wives for any reason. And so the Pharisees are asking Jesus, is that lawful? We're getting that from Moses. Is that lawful? They're wanting to test him. They're wanting to make it so that Jesus is saying something that Moses did not say, or they're trying to catch Jesus being in opposition to Moses. And Jesus tells them that's not how it was from the beginning, was it? So he goes back to Genesis and says, uh, God created male and female, and the the man was to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. The design of marriage is to be permanent. The design in the beginning of marriage was to be between a man and a woman till death do they part. And so he says, it's because of your hard hardness, your hard heartedness that divorce is allowed. In other words, divorce is an exception that's made because of sin. But the the design of marriage does not include divorce. Does that make sense? R.T. France says it like this. He says, divorce might be necessary, but it could never be good. Divorce could be, is, might be necessary. There might be a situation that Jesus gives here in Matthew 19, uh, sexual immorality. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Paul talks about the idea of abandonment or abandoning the covenant. There might be necessary reasons why divorce might take place, but it's never good. It's never good. Divorce is not always sin, in other words, but it is always the result of sin. So when we find a husband and a wife separating and divorcing, it may not be sin in and of itself. There may be valid biblical grounds for that divorce, but that divorce is always the result of sin. It's always tragic. It's always sad. It's always heartbreaking. And so Jesus is walking along, and here's his disciples in verse 10. They say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. The disciples are like, this is a hard saying. This is difficult that we're actually having to, to, to think through what it is that you're saying. And Jesus says, well, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's given. In other words, Jesus is saying, not every one of you is going to be married. Not every one of you is going to have to hold to this commitment because not every one of you is going to get this commitment. In other words, Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you and me, when he starts talking about eunuchs, those who are single either by 
uh, circumstance or by decision, you're not promised a spouse. You're not promised a, a, a spouse. You're not promised a husband or a wife. And Jesus says this much. And why does he say that? It's because Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see that following him in, is the way, in, in the way of holiness. Following Jesus, no matter what, listening to what Jesus has to say rather than what the world has allowed you to believe, will inevitably lead to unfulfilled desires. Now, I don't have a chapter and verse on this, but it seems to be the case. It seems to be a general principle that if you are following Jesus, there will be real desires, good desires, things that you ought to long for in this life that will go unfulfilled if you're faithful to Jesus. There will be temporary real good desires that you might, be ha- you might have to be willing to give those up for the sake of following Christ. The question is whether you believe following Jesus is worth giving them up so that you can have him. And that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at against these Pharisees. The issue is not divorce and what's lawful and what's not lawful. The, 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 the question is, do you love God? Do you want to follow God's word? Are you willing to do the hard things and give up the convenient things and give up the pleasures and desires of this world and doing whatever you think you want to do? Are you willing to give those up for the sake of following him? So this little story of marriage and singleness clues us in to that. We have to keep going. So find uh, verse 13. Verse 13. We're going to read through the end of the chapter here. We're going to read all this. If, if anything, we're going to read the word. That's the most important thing. So starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So just real quick, we'll stop there. Um, this is just a reminder of what we learned last week, right? What does it mean to enter the kingdom? How do you enter the kingdom? With childlike faith. You trust in the Lord in the same way that a child trusts in his parents. Jesus is also showing that children have dignity and worth. They're they're not a nuisance. They're not a burden. They're not merely something to have to keep up with. They're a wonderful gift. And they're even a teaching tool of Jesus himself. As a parent of a small child, I can confirm there are times when my child is a burden. (laughs) There's there's times when my child is, is just needy, right? But he is not just needy. He is not merely a burden. He is a gift. He's, he's a treasure. He's, he's a human being made in God's image, and he's worthy of dignity and honor and value, even as a little boy. Jesus is affirming the full image of God, the full dignity of human beings here. Let's keep going. 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. So let's just stop there because we're going to move to the second portion, the second thing if you're taking notes. So number two is, is all about entering the kingdom. So we, we prime the pump, so to speak, talking about children and that reminder from last week that what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? How do we enter the kingdom of God? With childlike faith. And I think Matthew is doing something really clever by putting these two stories right next to each other. So the children come to Jesus. Jesus says, for, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, in verse 14. To, to, to such as these, these little children, these are the ones who are going to enter the kingdom. And the very next thing that happens is this young, rich, wealthy, well-to-do man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, Jesus has just said, these are the ones who will enter the kingdom. And basically, the same question is being asked. Eternal life is very similar to being in God's kingdom, right? So this young ruler comes up and says, well, what must I do? And he argues that he has kept the law. Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Obey the law. And he says that he has kept the law. He calls on Jesus and asks about what good he has left to do. He calls him good teacher. What good deed must I do? And Jesus calls him out by saying there's only one who's good. Apart from that one, apart from the Lord, there is no good. And Jesus quickly gets to the heart of the matter. You read through this section again, and you, you, you pick up on something about which commandments Jesus references. Right? Look again at verse 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? So this, this young ruler has it in his mind that there are certain commandments I probably don't have to keep. And certain commandments that I really do need to keep so that my, my work will weigh enough for me to be able to enter the kingdom. Which ones do I have to obey? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Now what's, what's striking about all of these laws? All of these laws are horizontal in nature, Right? I don't steal from another person. I don't commit adultery against another person. I don't uh, murder another person. I honor my father and my mother. I love my neighbor as myself. But what's not mentioned in any of these laws is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. This young man who had a lot of possessions wanted eternal life as just another possession. He was working to achieve. He was working to earn something from God. And so Jesus' call to give all of his possessions away was too much to bear. It was too incompatible with this man's life. He heard the message and he rejected it. Which is also a pretty scary thing for us to consider. Because at the end of the day, this man had made himself ultimate. He was his own God. And what he needed was what other people were able to give him. And he would work hard and earn and, and achieve to receive all of those things so that he could stay in control, so that he could stay the Lord of his life. And so the idea of just freely giving something away makes no sense. It also should alert us to this idea. This man said that he had kept all of these laws. 
In other words, people can still think that you're really nice and you still be your own God. People in this room can think, man, that person is so nice. They're so kind. And you can still be your own God. You can still idolize yourself. And so the story of the rich young ruler is, is very, I think, very relevant to all of us. As we think about living in a culture that does still value being nice, niceness is not the same as living in a new kingdom. Niceness is not the same as living your life dependent on God like a child. So Jesus uses this rejection as a teaching tool. Look with me in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Pause just really quickly there. There have been a lot of like scholars and commentators and people who have tried to make sense of that thing. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they've said all of these things like, well, in Jerusalem, there was this, there was this, uh, this little gate called the needle. And camels would have to like get down on all fours and basically like scoot down to go through the thing. It was really, really hard. And if they had a whole lot of stuff, they wouldn't be able to fit. And so they'd have to maneuver and strategize and prepare for this camel. And it was just so difficult and so like slow going and just not efficient or effective. And that's what Jesus has in mind. No, it's impossible. Camels don't go through the eyes of needles. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Sometimes we get really good at trying to overthink things. Jesus is making, is, is, he's not making fun. He's making a very clear illustration with something that's not possible. All of you know what a camel is, right? Large animal. All of you know what a needle is, right? Very, very small thing. A camel will go through this needle's eye before a rich man goes into heaven. Let's keep going. And the disciples get this, right? Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's interesting that the disciples would say to Jesus after Jesus says, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Their response isn't, man, I'm really glad I'm not rich. Right? They're not. I mean, like, they were fishermen. I mean, they were basically teenagers. As far as we know, like late teens, early 20s were these disciples. They were not rich. They had not made a name for themselves. And so if, if Jesus is telling me, hey, it's impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom, I'd be like, Whew, good thing I'm not rich because I'm getting the kingdom. That's not their response. Their response is, who then can be saved? And that's interesting, isn't it? As if the rich were the closest to the kingdom and those who were not rich were farther away. These disciples, I think, are repeating 
the classic understanding of the world then and the world now. The people with money and power are the important ones. If there's little hope for a rich person, the disciples think, then what hope do we have? And Jesus responds, it's impossible with man to enter the kingdom. And that's the point. Man cannot reach to the heavens on his terms. He cannot enter the kingdom by his own strength, by his own power or his fame or his fortune. But God can bring sinners into his kingdom. He's the one who makes a way. With God, it is possible. And he assures his disciples in this passage of their reward in heaven. And just as assured as the disciples are, we too can be assured that there is a great reward that awaits all those who come to Christ with childlike faith. What the disciples just saw, the previous passage. This kingdom is upside down, right? The rich rulers are not invited, but the little children are. In other words, the last are first, and the first are last. And that brings us to chapter 20. So we're going to read this extended parable, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Just real quick pause at the end of verse 7, just so that we're all on the same page. Early in the morning, probably about 6 a.m., the third hour in verse 3 is about 9 o'clock. The sixth hour is 12 o'clock. The ninth hour is 3 o'clock. The eleventh hour is 5 p.m., like the end of our workday. So we need to see, this is, this is where these workers have gone into the field all throughout the day. Verse 8, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, the ones who were hired at the eleventh hour, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Third point this morning radical generosity. The upside down kingdom is full of radical generosity. So Jesus is using this example the, the rich young ruler has left, the last will be first, the first will be last. He tells this story 
to make the point. In those days, laborers would wait at a certain place for someone to hire them. So you were a worker, you were a, a strong hand, maybe you had some skills in carpentry. Well, employment was not necessarily the, the same today as it was then. For many, employment and labor and work was a day-to-day struggle. So they would go to a central location, all the laborers would go, and, and the masters of houses or the foremen of construction sites or whatever it was that needed to be done that day would go to that marketplace, go to that place where the laborers were, and hire, say, I need 20 people to help me today, would go and hire out of that pool 20 people. So if you were one of the first person hired, great, you had a full day's work, you were going to a full day's pay, everything was going to be great. But if you didn't get hired, you would wait, you'd wait and wait, and wait, and at some point, the workers would not have anything to do because no one would be there to hire them. This is, this is true today, too, in other places, right? So I've, I've spent time in Africa, and you can pass by a main road, and you can see next to different job sites just rows of men waiting to be hired every day. It still happens today. So the master of a house in this story went to hire some laborers and agreed to a certain price, a denarius. And then throughout the day, more and more workers were added at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and finally 5 p.m. And all were summoned by the same master. And don't miss this. The longer the day goes on for an unhired laborer, the more needy those unhired workers are, right? The longer that day goes on, the less opportunity they have to make money. And this isn't a... I mean, a day laborer is not a, a cushy job that has a lot of uh, retirement options and insurance plans. It's, I make what I need to live. And so as the day goes on, these men become more and more apparent that if they don't find work, it will not go well for them. So they felt their need to make a wage, but were simply unable to do it. And the master comes there at the last moment, the 11th hour, gives them a chance, basically at the very end of the day. So then at the end of the day, when the wages were to be paid, the master begins with those last ones hired. And everyone probably expects they're just going to get pennies for the hour that they've worked. But it would have been more than nothing. But beginning with those last workers... The master of the house gives a full denarius to each of them for basically no work. I mean, by the time they got there and got things set up was about the time things were wrapping up. And he gives them a full day's wage. And the earlier workers see this generosity and they think, man, I just got a raise. The, the, the ones who were hired earlier are looking at the generosity of the master But instead of seeing that as a thing to celebrate, they're looking at their own opportunity to get more. They are self-centered here. So then as the foreman hands out more wages and the denarius isn't going up, they start to grumble. They start to get upset. We worked a whole day. We worked out in the heat since the dawn and you're giving these people the same money as us? They grumbled Because it wasn't fair. Generosity is not fair. Generosity is not getting what you deserve. 
And the master knows it. The master knows that they are not seeing his generosity for what it is. They're interpreting his generosity towards others as an offense towards them because they're self-centered. So he explains, he gave them what was agreed. Didn't you agree with me early in the morning for a denarius? Didn't we have this conversation? Didn't you say, that sounds good to me? I've done nothing wrong by you. Why should they begrudge his generosity? Now, there's a lot we could get into with this parable, but here's where I want to land. Some of us have had a life that is harder than others. And through our obedience, it becomes easy to look down on those who struggle to obey, who struggle to understand, who struggle to get with the program. For those of us who have figured it out, it is easy for us to look at others who are struggling as though we are superior. It's easy to cry foul at grace being poured out on another person when you didn't receive that grace in equal measure in your eyes. So maybe you have a problem with somebody and somebody's treating them well and it makes you angry. Or maybe someone is receiving some grace or some generosity for something that you didn't receive grace for earlier. And you begin to value and evaluate everything in your life based on how things have happened to you. And and you you become the standard of justice. You become the standard of fairness. And if things aren't up to snuff for you and how you were treated and how things went in your life, then nobody else should deserve anything more. And not only do they not deserve it, you get upset when they get it. It's easy to cry foul at grace being poured out on another person when you didn't receive it. And the scriptures say here to us and to those workers, friend, take what belongs to you. Do you begrudge the master's generosity? And here's the key to this parable. The laborers hired earlier could have made a different choice. If they'd have known that the the master who they worked for was a generous man, if they would have had a relationship with that master, then the hiring of those workers would have come to them with great expectation. Because those ones who had labored all the day would see those ones being hired by that generous master at 5 p.m. and they go, oh, it is going to be a great day for those men. You see the difference? If, if I know who that master is and how he treats people, then I don't have to be so wrapped up in my own conception of fairness and justice. I can get so wrapped up in his generosity that when he pours out his generosity on other people, instead of being upset and offended, I can be celebrating with them. They could have rejoiced with their co-workers who received such blessing. They could have multiplied the generosity with celebration with their laborers, those who came to the very end of the day with great fear and worry about how they were going to make ends meet, and they could have celebrated with them, isn't that master good? And instead, they sucked out all the joy of this story and said, well, where's my reward? What's in it for me? 
they attempted to grumble and snuff out the master's blessings. And as followers of Jesus, we will all be the needy laborer hired at the last minute at some point. And we will all be the one who works from the dawn to the dusk. And we all have the opportunity to really rejoice with each other how God chooses to bless us in this moment. It's not a competition because we're on the same team and we have the same master. And he chooses, as he sees fit, to pour out his generosity. All right, last section, and then we have to be done. Starting in verse 20. Or 17, sorry. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. If you're taking notes, fourth section, last section, worldly ambition and humble ambition. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Matthew cleverly follows this parable with a reminder of Jesus' coming sacrifice. More information is given here than before. He's going to Jerusalem. He'll be handed over by the chief priests to the Gentiles. He will be condemned and crucified, but he will rise. Everyone will want him dead. So let's see where that leads. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? That's important. What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. And you, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. For it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10, that's the other 10 disciples, heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So let's stop there. Talk of what's in store about Jesus going to Jerusalem, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, leads the mother of James and John, clamoring for her boys to have superior ranks to the rest of the apostles. Now we don't know why exactly she's asking this. Maybe she's trying to to slight Peter, the other of the three kind of intimate disciples of Jesus. Maybe she's just thinking about this immediate kingdom like most Jews would be thinking that, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's about to set up his kingdom. This is going to be great. We can only speculate. But Jesus looks at James and John and wonders if they know what following Jesus into that kingdom will mean. What cup he will drink. Drinking a cup here is a symbol for facing judgment. And Jesus agrees, they too will drink the cup. But the other apostles are upset because these two are trying to jockey for position. They're ambitious to get ahead. They're ambitious to lead. Even using their own mother to do it. This is worldly ambition, right? 
This is the ambition of the rich young ruler. This is the ambition of the uh, hired worker who was hired first. We are most important. Life is good when we are good. If success means stepping on a few necks and burning some bridges, bring it on. Because that's the way of the world. But Jesus says, you're right. That's what the leaders of this world do. That's how they think. But it must not be so among you. Remember, the kingdom of God is upside down. The greatest ones in the kingdom are the servants, which leads us to this bombshell verse in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, my friends, is the gospel. God came down. He put on flesh and he gave his life for sinners like you and me. Notice he's mentioned in Matthew a couple of times already his coming death. And he mentions it here yet again. But notice what he says. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. No one takes Jesus' life. No one robs Jesus of life. He gives it. He gives it. We can enter the kingdom with childlike faith because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. We enter the kingdom to be servants because the Son of Man came to serve. And when we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are learning who God is. Jesus, in contrast to the sons of Zebedee, in contrast to the rich young ruler, in contrast to the earlier workers, Jesus had humble ambition. He wasn't striving for position or status. He was striving for faithfulness to his father. What am I willing to do to be faithful to God? That's a totally different question than what am I willing to do to get what I want? What am I willing to do to get ahead in this world? What am I willing to do to have success as I've defined it? That's worldly ambition. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. What am I willing to give? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to do away with? What, what am I willing to do to be faithful to God? The gospel frees us up to have the same pursuit. That we don't have to run the same kind of race that the world is running. But instead, we can run for faithfulness. How do we get there? How do we do that? How do we, how do we enter that upside-down kingdom? What, how, do we, how do we muster up childlike faith? How do we do this thing? Well, it's not really anything we do, is it? It's a recognition of our need. And it's a cry for mercy, which is exactly how Matthew ends this chapter. Verse 29. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? It's the same question that he asked James and John's mother. What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. 
And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the gospel, that we in our darkness and blindness come to realize our poorness of spirit, our poverty of spirit, and we cry out for mercy to the Lord who is able to open the eyes of the blind. But in order to make that cry, in order to make that appeal, these blind men saw something that they didn't need physical sight for. And listen to their cry, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They knew who Jesus was. And we see the effects of that because after they had eyes to see and were able to do what they wanted to do through that cry of mercy, they followed Jesus. You and I too can follow Jesus into his kingdom. All we need is an awareness of our need, like these blind men, and the faith that Jesus will meet that need. This is life in the upside-down kingdom. So let me pray. You'll get some time to discuss this in your groups.